Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. We're in a series going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And uh, right now we've got a flooded earth, so we need to get it unflooded this morning. As we, uh, as we turn to Genesis chapter 8, um, I want to remind you that two weeks from today, Sunday, March 1st, uh, Lord willing, is going to be a significant day in the life of our congregation. Um, that day we're going to be considering our mission as a church. We're going to be considering uh, the vision uh, for the future that our elders believe the Lord is leading us as a church. And uh, we're going to consider some practical steps that we can take in order to get there. And so um, we pray that that will be a significant day for our church. And uh, that as we continue following the Lord's lead and following um, his mission for us, um, that he will, be con- he will honor himself through our church. And so uh, please uh, plan to be here on March 1st, uh, both in gathered worship Sunday morning, but also in, in home fellowship, uh, our home fellowship gatherings that evening on March 1st. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is A World Prepared for Life. A World Prepared for Life. And we'll be in chapters 8 and 9 today, but for now, let's just read the first 19 verses of chapter 8 as we see the story of the flood continue. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. So the story of the flood spans chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis. And um, what we see is that the the story really unfolds in two halves, and these two halves mirror each other. What we saw last week as the flood started, as the flood came upon the earth, is that it really looked like a reversal of creation, a decreation effect as God judged the world with the flood. What we see as the floodwaters go down, as the flood ends, is that this mimics really a repeat of creation. There's a recreation that we see here in these verses. And the hinge between those two sections, these mirror 
halves um, of decreation and recreation is verse 1 of chapter 8. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God was determined to judge the world, but he was no less committed to save the lives of those aboard the ark. He remembered them. Even in the chaos of God's watery judgment, God had not forgotten those on the ark. He was purposefully and graciously preserving the lives of Noah and his family and all of the animals with him. He remembered them, and so he took action to make the world ready to live again, ready to live in again. We saw when we looked at Genesis 1 and the creation of the world that in each step of the creation process, God was preparing the world to be a suitable home for humans. And we see this same thing here in chapter 8 as uh, the flood is, uh, again, this sort of recreation theme. If the coming of the flood was a reversal of creation, the ending of the flood was a repeat of creation. When God created the world, his spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And here, God sends a wind, which is the same word as spirit, over the watery earth. God sends the waters above and the waters below back to where they came from, which mimics the uh, third day of creation, or the second day of creation, as he separated the waters above and the waters below. Here he causes dry land to appear again, which echoes the third day of creation. Uh, The waters continue to subside and birds become key figures, which echoes the uh, fifth day of creation. And then, of course, this recreation concludes with humans and land animals occupying the earth, which echoes the sixth day of creation week. And when it was finally safe to come out, God instructs the humans and the animals to exit the ark, and he expresses his intention for them. He tells Noah that he and his family and all of these animals with them were to go out and be fruitful and multiply, which is, again, a repeat of what God told his creatures at the end of creation week. So just like in creation, God physically prepared a world for humans to live in. So now, here, with this, uh, this family, Noah and his sons and all of their wives and then the um, animals with them, as God was restarting creation, he had physically prepared a world that was ready for them to live in. But after surviving this catastrophic event of this global flood, And considering what life is going to be like in this brave new world that they were entering in, there were certainly some looming questions on the minds of Noah and his family. Questions like, how do we avoid another global flood? (laughs) Questions like, okay, we're... It's just us. There is no one else. We're starting from scratch. What do we do now? And what we, so what we see here in chapter 8, and then also we'll continue into chapter 9, is that God does more for them than just physically prepare the world for them to be able to live in it. He also spiritually prepares Noah and his family as they embark on their new life in this new world. What Noah and his family needed from God to be ready for life in their day, we need for life in our day. Now, on the surface, it may not seem like we have a whole lot in common with Noah and his family. And in one sense, that is certainly true. There is a lot that is obviously not the same for us and for Noah and his family. But we do experience the same kind of spiritual questions that Noah and his family faced. We may not have experienced the evil world that Noah came from before the flood, but we all have to wrestle with the wrong in our own hearts, the wrong that we've done. I mean, even those who don't believe in God have to wonder, you know, how do I stay on the good side of the universe? How do I ensure that what I've done doesn't come back to me in some way? We all have to wrestle with the wrong that we've done. And we may not be restarting our species, 
like Noah and his family, but we all still have to wonder and ask the same kind of a question of, why am I here? What is my purpose? How do I go about living? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And we may not be restarting life after billions of deaths, but we all wonder if there is life after death in a more significant sense, and we can we wonder and we want to be sure if we can experience it. So in light of these things, I want to draw our attention to three ways that God spiritually prepared the world for Noah and his family. And really, three ways that God spiritually prepared Noah and his family for the world. These are things that God provided for them in their day, and they're things that we need as well. There's three of them. And the first one is provision for sin. I'll go ahead and give you the three. Provision for sin, purpose for living, and a promise of life. Provision for sin, purpose for living, promise of life. So first, provision for sin. So what was the first thing that Noah did after he exited the ark? What what would be the first thing you would do after spending a year in an ark, a flooded earth, First opportunity to get out on dry land. What would you do? Well, let's see in the rest of chapter 8, starting in verse 20, what Noah does first. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah had just witnessed the universal judgment of God upon the world. And he had received salvation at the hand of a gracious God. So it is no surprise that the first thing Noah did was worship. Noah gets out of the ark and he builds an altar. And he took some of every clean animal that was on the ark. Some of every clean animal. So this is a massive offering that we're talking about here. He takes them and he offers them as a burnt sacrifice to Yahweh. In this offering... It's gratitude for what God has done. In this offering is an expression of devotion to God because of what he did. But we should also notice that the language used here about burnt offerings of clean animals is a preview of the sacrificial system that, would, that God would put into the law of Moses. As we see in places like Leviticus 1, These types of offerings, the type that Noah is offering here, these were the types of offerings that were used to atone for sin. By offering these animals to God, there was gratitude, there was devotion, but Noah was also asking God to turn away his wrath. And that is exactly what God did when he received the offering. Verse 21 tells us that God was pleased by the sacrifice Noah offered. And then in the text we get a glimpse into the heart of Yahweh as God says to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now that phrase, curse the ground, um, is different than the curse on the ground that we uh, have seen in Genesis chapter 3 as the result of uh, the fall. We still live in a cursed world that continues. This phrase is referring to the fact that God intended not to destroy the earth again because of man. He intended not to destroy in the same way that he had with the flood. Now, God would have been justified to destroy the world again. Just like he did the first time. Man, or just like in the first case, man was evil. Man's heart was uh, sinful. And as man would spread again, evil would spread again. And so God would be just to destroy the earth again because of man. 
God even says in verse 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's the same language he used back in Genesis chapter 5 as he looked on the hearts of men uh, before the flood. Man is still deserving of of judgment. Nothing has changed in terms of man and his sinfulness and what he deserves. But because God was pleased by the offering of Noah, he turned away his wrath. He resolved to give grace to the world in such a way that would let life continue and be multiplied on the earth despite man's sin. So God brings his people safely through his watery judgment, and then he accepts a sacrifice and turns away his wrath. That is amazing grace. It's amazing grace that the first audience of Genesis would have been familiar with, Israel wandering in the wilderness. Uh, They were the first audience of this book, and certainly they would have uh, been familiar with this same kind of grace because God had brought them safely through the Red Sea which became waters of judgment on the Egyptian army. And he gave them the sacrificial system through which they could make offerings to atone for their sins. And God smelled those pleasing aromas. And he turned away his wrath. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. All of those offerings of the sacrificial system, the offering that we see here, It's just a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of the greater sacrifice that we all need if we are to escape the wrath of God. Uh, Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We read from there earlier in our service. I want to highlight that. This offering is a foreshadowing of the greater sacrifice that we need. Ephesians chapter 5, as you turn to 1 John 4, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 says this. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul describes Jesus' offering of himself in his death on the cross as the ultimate fragrant offering that satisfied God. We see this idea also in 1 John and uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Listen again to what John writes. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation has to do with turning away God's wrath. God's holiness and his righteousness demand that God punishes sin. But when Jesus offered himself as a substitute for us, He fulfilled what God's righteousness demanded. He took the judgment that sin deserved. As we often sing, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, The wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. You know, after exiting the ark, it would have been natural for Noah to think, well, we made it through that one. What if we mess up again? I know the brokenness inside my own heart. I know the sin that dwells within me. What's to stop God from sending his judgment again? What if he gives me what I deserve? And maybe you know that fear too. Maybe even this week, 
you sinned again in that same way that you've sinned a hundred times before. And you fear. This time, it's been one too many. God can't forgive me this time. Maybe you've sinned in a way that you didn't even know you were capable of. And now you fear you've gone too far for God to still love you. Let me read one more verse from 1 John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you place your trust in Jesus' death in your place, you have no reason to fear. If you have placed your faith in Jesus' death in your place, the wrath of God has been totally satisfied. There is none left for you to take for yourself. Jesus paid it all. And so, if you are in Christ, if you have stood in his forgiveness, if you have received this gift of love and righteousness, then you can say confidently, here in the death of Christ, I live. You have no reason to fear. We'll keep a, a finger or a bookmark in 1 John 4 because we'll be back to it. But for now, let's turn back to Genesis and uh, let's look at the rest of chapter 8. So in chapter 8, God speaks twice. First, God tells Noah to exit the ark. And as he does, he expresses his intention. His intention for humans and animals is to be fruitful and multiply. The second time God speaks, he speaks to himself, and he expresses another intention, an intention never again to destroy the earth as he did. Well, so what we see then in chapter 9 in verses 1 through 17 is an unpacking of these two intentions of God. In verses 1 through 7, we see an unpacking of his intention for humans uh, to be fruitful and multiply. And then in verses 8 through 17, we see an unpacking of his intention never again to destroy the earth as he did. So as we look at uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we're going to see this second way that God was preparing spiritually Noah and his family by giving them a purpose for living. Let's read verses 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. So just as God blessed Adam and Eve when he created them, so God blesses Noah and his sons through whom God would restart humanity. And just like he did with Adam and Eve, God blesses Noah and his sons for a purpose. And that purpose is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he expresses this purpose in a charge that bookends the, this section of verses 9 through 7. This charge, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants us, his image bearers, 
to fill the earth. He wants us to multiply and fill the earth in a way that we reflect him so that the earth would be filled with God's glory. And so with this charge to multiply and, uh, and fill the earth also came instructions from God to Noah and his sons about how, how they were to respect life, both animal life and human life, in the process of filling the earth with God's glory. So first, instructions about respecting animal life. Just as God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the animals from the beginning, so this continued. Man had dominion over the animals after the flood. But unlike before, now as part of this dominion, God gave animals as food to humans. But God put a limit on what humans were allowed to do with the animals. He told them not to eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. The blood of the animal was a symbol of its life. And even as humans were allowed to eat animals, they were to do so in a way that respected the life of the animals out of respect for God, who gave life to the animals and who gave these animals to humans in order to eat. So if humans were to multiply on the face of the earth, obviously they needed something to eat. So God gave humans permission to eat animals, but they were to do so with these, following these guidelines of respecting life. Now, in order for humanity to fill the earth and to multiply as God intended, it was also necessary that they respected human life. When God created humans, he made them in his image with dignity and with honor because we are made in the image of God. Here, God not only reiterates that truth, but he gives explicit instructions about the consequences for those who would violate the dignity of human life. God said that any animal or human who took the life of a human was to be put to death. The post-flood world was to be different than the world prior to the flood, which was described as being filled with violence, like the violence we saw in Cain and Lamech, for instance, who were murderers. Essentially, what's happening here in these verses is God is instituting the death penalty. But if humans are created in the image of God, and if it's wrong to take human life, isn't capital punishment wrong? Actually, what we see here in the logic of what God is saying is that capital punishment is just because humans are created in the image of God. The life of God's image bearers is so precious that anyone who would kill a human deserves death. Any lesser punishment would be a cheapening of the value of the life of the victim. Now, it's important to recognize that in this instruction, God is not giving permission to just any individual to take revenge on a murderer. As Scripture unfolds, we see God's intention and his purpose uh, more uh, fleshed out, and that his intention is clearly that this would be carried out by society and government in particular, not individuals. God has put human government in place to maintain justice. Uh, we read earlier from Romans chapter 13, and this reiterates this point and uh, shows more of what God's intention is here that uh, continues throughout Scripture. In Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has given the sword to government. And so when the state justly carries out the death penalty on those who violate the dignity of human life, the state is doing they're doing so with the very authority of God, as God's servant. Now, this also means that when a government wrongly carries out the death penalty on the innocent, 
at that point, the state is violating the dignity of the human life. And they will be held accountable by God. But the point is still the same. Human life is so precious that taking a human life is deathly serious. So in this section, God tells his creatures to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. And in the process, they are to respect life, especially human life. So as God is restating his purpose for humanity here, the same purpose that he had had for humanity from the beginning, to to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to take dominion, this passage shows us that this does not mean that God has given us free reign over creation. Far from it. As God's image bearers, our purpose is to reflect God. We are not to dominate the earth independent from God. We're to take dominion as we depend on God. We're to fill the earth in a way that reflects God's heart. We're to rule over creation in the way that God rules over creation. Noah and his family uh, could eat animals, not because humans could do whatever they wanted, but only because God had generously given them uh, to them as food. They were to take advantage of what God had given them only in the way that God instructed them. They were to remember that the animals didn't belong to them. They were a gift to be stewarded God's way and for God's glory. And this is instructive for us as we consider what God has given us to steward. As we take dominion, as we manage the things that belong to us, ultimately they belong to God. As we pursue success, as we pursue achievement, we must not lose sight of our ultimate purpose, which is to honor the God in whose image we are created. If we're living out our purpose as God's image bearers, we won't work to build our kingdom. We'll do it for the glory of God. We won't manage our money as if it were our own to use for whatever our personal priorities are. We will manage our money according to what God values for his glory, according to his word and his priorities. If we want to fill the earth with God's glory, then we will manage God's world, God's way. And as we fill the earth, even more important than our relationship to stuff is our relationship to our fellow image bearers. As this text indicates, respecting our fellow image bearers certainly involves protecting innocent life. But if we're to truly honor God in the way that we treat humanity, we must do more than just not murder each other. As God's image bearers, we are to put God's glory on display. And the way that we do that is by treating our fellow image bearers with the same love that God has shown to each one of us. And this is especially true for those of us who have received God's gift of grace in Christ. So turn back to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4 and verses 10 and 11. We read verse 10 before, but verse 11 is connected to it in a way that can't be separated. Let's read verses 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For John, propitiation is not some abstract theological concept. If we have trusted in Jesus, John thinks that we should be moved by the love that God has shown by sending Jesus to sacrifice himself in such a way that would turn away God's wrath. He thinks that propitiation should transform our hearts In such a way, we should be so moved by God's love that it fills us with an overwhelming sense of identity as God's 
beloved, and that that should then overflow out of us into Christ-like love for others. If we are to fill the earth with God's glory, we must have as a chief priority showing God's love to our fellow image bearers, loving the way that God first loved us in Christ. So we've seen God give Noah and his family and humanity a provision for sin, a purpose for living, and then last we see a promise of life. Turn back to Genesis chapter 9. Let's read verses 8 through 17 of Genesis 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So in these verses, the creator formally establishes a covenant with his creatures. Covenants were very common in the ancient world, and they are very significant in Scripture. A covenant is a relationship in which two or more parties make binding promises to one another. So there's a relationship, and there are promises. And these promises become the backbone of the relationship. So for example, marriage is a covenant relationship. A husband and wife enter into a relationship and they make commitments to one another. And those commitments are the basis of their relationship. So in this relationship, who is involved? Who are the parties of this covenant? Well, the creator and his creatures. God said in verses 8 through 10 that he was establishing his covenant with Noah and all of humanity that would come from him. And even with all the animals on the earth. So what was promised in this covenant? Well, God committed to never again destroy the earth with a flood. Of course, there's been small floods since then, right? But never again has God destroyed all, of, all flesh with a flood. He is continuing to keep his promise. So here in this text, we see the members of the covenant and the promise of this covenant But there's something that this covenant, there's something about this covenant that is different than the typical covenant. This covenant is one-sided. God says, I establish my covenant with you. God doesn't ask Noah if he wants to be in this relationship. The sovereign God establishes this relationship. Not only that, but God's promises And this relationship are in no way dependent upon Noah. They're in no way dependent upon the humans that would come from him or anyone else for that matter. In this covenant, God committed never again to destroy all living beings with a flood. Period. And as with many of the covenants in Scripture, God gives a sign to go along with this covenant. The sign of this covenant is the rainbow. 
And just like the covenant is one-sided with God establishing the relationship and God making his promises and God committing to keep his promises because of his own faithfulness, so even the sign of the covenant is not something that could ever be dependent on humans to do. The sign itself, the rainbow, could only come from God. And it's just this reiteration of the fact that this is all God. It's not dependent on us. And this covenant that God makes with Noah is significant to us for a couple of reasons. First, because it's still in effect today. I mean, we are here. Our lives have been spared. And that is, I mean, as relevant to us as, as it gets. Every time we see a rainbow, we are looking at a reminder of the mercy of God. Every time we see a rainbow, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness that has not wavered for a second. God in his mercy promised never again to destroy the world with a flood, and God continues to demonstrate his faithfulness to keep that promise. But the second reason this covenant is significant is because this covenant foreshadows an even better covenant. This covenant foreshadows the new covenant that God established in Christ. In his covenant with Noah, God established a relationship with his creatures in which he made the promise and he continues to keep the promise because of his own faithfulness. He personally ensures that this covenant and the promises of the covenant can continue and be maintained. Nothing that we do can stop him from breaking his promise that he made to Noah. And this is also true in the new covenant that God established in Christ. In the new covenant, God sets his steadfast love on his people. And nothing we can do, nothing we would ever do, could remove God's love that he has committed to us in the new covenant. Earlier in our service, we read from Isaiah chapter 54, and I'd encourage you to turn back there. Isaiah chapter 54. We call the new covenant the new covenant because there was an old covenant. It was the covenant that was made at Sinai with the nation of Israel. The demands of that covenant on the human side were called the Mosaic Law. We've already seen uh, some of the sacrificial system that God put in place in order to atone for the sins of breaking all of the demands of that law. The Old Covenant came short in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that we see over and over in Scripture is that God's people, as they tried to keep that Old Covenant, failed in their end of the covenant, on their end of the commitment, on, on what was expected of them, time and time and time again. Well, what we see in Isaiah 54 is that God promises a new covenant, what he calls the covenant of peace. And he compares this new covenant to the covenant with Noah. Listen to verses 9 and 10 again of Isaiah 54. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains made apart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God promises that he will be just as faithful to show love and compassion on his people in the new covenant as he has been faithful to keep his promise to, in the covenant of Noah. And the reason why God can guarantee his faithfulness, the reason why he can guarantee his steadfast love will remain on his people in the new covenant is because the new covenant is established in Jesus' blood. We do nothing to deserve God's love. If covenant keeping was up to us, just like the people of Israel proved in their case time and time again, we're failures. We come short. And for our failures, we deserve to have our blood 
shed. But if we are in Christ, if we have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, placed our faith in his free gift of salvation, all of our failures are paid by the blood of Jesus. If we have trusted in Jesus, there is nothing we can do to stop God from loving us. And in Christ, we have a better promise than just that our lives won't be cut off by a global flood. We have the promise of eternal life, secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. At this point in our service, we are transitioning now to the table. Jesus, before he left, gave his disciples a meal that they were to take with each other. And it was to be a symbol so that they would remember his death in their place. And as we come to the table today, we must recognize that we come as those who do not deserve God's love. We do not deserve his gift of life. We come to the table because we could not hold up our end of a covenant if we tried. Our only hope of receiving the benefits of God's faithfulness is if our covenant breaking is covered by the blood of Jesus. And so the night that he was betrayed, that's why Jesus took a cup and he held it up and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' blood covers every one of our failures. So we don't come to this table as confident people in and of ourselves. We come to this table as people whose only confidence is the blood of Jesus. We don't come to this table as self-righteous. We come to this table knowing that we are poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that only comes from Jesus Christ. And so today, if you have trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, we invite you to come to this table. If you're a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church, this table is for you. This meal is our family feast of remembrance of what brings us together, and it is the death of Christ in our place. If you have not trusted in Jesus, we would ask, uh, these elements are going to be passed out in a moment, and as they are, we would ask that you let them pass by you. And just so you know, it's not because we don't want you to experience the love of God. We desperately want you to experience the life-changing power of the death of Jesus. But in order to experience that, in order to receive the benefits of what Jesus died for and, uh, and the benefits of his resurrection, we have to let go of trusting in ourselves. We have to let go of our sin and we have to cast ourselves on the mercy of God. And so as these elements are passed out, we ask you not to partake of these, but instead to consider the fact that Jesus today is extending an offer to you. He is extending an offer to you of his death and resurrection, and it is yours for the taking. All you have to do is place your faith in Jesus alone and in his finished work alone so would you consider that offer and would you repent of your sins and trust in jesus alone today for your salvation uh, there's one one other um one other thing i'd like to add and that's um paul writes in first corinthians that um, when there's divisions within the body of christ uh, that coming to the table with those divisions uh, is a disgrace to the, the Lord's Supper. It's a disgrace to the body of Christ. We're to examine the body, Paul says. And uh, to, to have division and to come to the table is to eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, Paul says. And so I would just ask you, if you are in Christ, but there's a division, um, 
between you and a brother or sister, uh, and maybe that's your spouse, maybe that's within your immediate family, maybe that's in the larger body of Christ. But if there's something that hasn't been reconciled, um, I would ask you also to refrain until that has been reconciled. And the reason is, is not because there's not forgiveness for that. There is, but the reason is when we go to the table unreconciled, we are declaring something that is not true. We're declaring that Christ can be divided. And that's not what the gospel says. The gospel unites us together. And so uh, I would ask you, be reconciled to your brother or sister and, uh, uh, before you partake of the Lord's table. Let's pray together as we uh, go into this time of um, feasting on the grace of Jesus. Father, you are a gracious, gracious God. And you have provided a way for your wrath to be propitiated. You have provided a way to have your wrath turned back, even though we are deserving of it. And it's only in Christ, and because his blood was shed, because he paid the price that our sins deserve. And so as we come to the table, as we take of this cup that is a symbol of Jesus' blood, as we take of this bread that's a symbol of Jesus' body, Lord, I pray that we would remember that our only hope is in Christ and Lord, just as we have seen. We have no reason to fear your wrath if we trust in Jesus' propitiation for us. Lord, I pray that we would come hungry for grace, knowing our sinfulness, knowing our unworthiness, and Lord, that we would come clinging only to Jesus. Lord, be honored in our hearts, be honored in this time of worship as we remember the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.